All right, Isaiah chapter 53, notice what it says in verse 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who should declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And that passage right there is one of the clearest Old Testament passages showing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that teachings like we're looking at tonight, this is where we find out if you're a King James only or a dispensationalist. And obviously, many dispensationalists claim to be King James only, but when King James, the King James text and dispensationalism come in conflict with each other, dispensationalism always trumps what is directly stated in our King James Bible with these people. And we'll see evidence of this as we go through it tonight. Well, we're going to find out too, People who teach certain things about Abraham's bosom and about Jesus going to hell do not take the Bible literally. And whenever uh, you get specific with what the Scriptures say, they leave it and they go into their dispensationalism. And, I, and so we're going to illustrate some of this. So last week we talked about the biblical version of the harrowing of hell, which is the, you know, a harrowing, it's a, Basically, a difficult, a stressful, I don't have the definition in front of me, experience. And Jesus Christ, His experience in hell, I believe, as the Scriptures explicitly state, that it was not pleasant. It was not good because I believe Jesus literally died and was dead for three days. And I believe that death is an unpleasant experience. And we saw how in the Scriptures, um, it always is death and hell they're always together. And most people, though, when they talk about hell, they are talking about hell with a capital H rather than with a small H. Hell is a thing. And it's not, it's not just the name of a place. If we're talking about the name of a place, then we can often just you know talk about what we think is there and go into speculation and other definitions. But if we realize it's a thing and we let the Bible explain what this thing is to us, we understand that it is death. It is, it is death and it is described as torments. And so we saw how death and hell are together. We understand as Christians, because Jesus died for us, we will never taste of death or hell. Our corpse will go to the grave, but I will never go to the grave. I will never go to Sheol. My body will go to Sheol, the grave, but my soul will not go. And listen, your soul does not go into the cemetery. Okay, your soul goes either to heaven or hell. It goes either to heaven or the grave. That's where your soul goes. And my soul will never go to the grave. And so like Jacob, 
when he said, you know, when he was worried about his soul go, or about, about going to the grave, he was clearly referring to the physical grave because he was old and if he would have gotten news that Benjamin died, he believed it would physically kill him. But he was never in any danger of going to hell. The spiritual grave. The, so, uh, that's we talked about all that last week. But we do believe that when Jesus died, his soul did in fact go to hell. Now, his soul, while it went to hell, he was not dead long enough for his body to see corruption. We see that he rose after three days. And when he rose, he, uh, he came back and he had the keys of death and of hell. And I believe that Jesus was dead for three days. We have Bible to prove it. Death is always a bad thing. Death is always a bad thing. Spiritual death. It isn't rest. Every time we see someone's soul in death, they are always in pain. And that even included Jesus, according to Acts 2, and God had to lose him. Like in Isaiah 53, he shall see the travail of his soul. That doesn't sound like a pleasant experience. He will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Was God satisfied at the cross and then boom, Jesus ascended to heaven? No, he had to die for three days. There was the travail of his body and I'm sure his soul was in travail during that time too. But he was not loosed from the pains of death. He wasn't even dead yet until he died on the cross. The travail of his soul was something that God saw during that time when he was dead and he was loosed from that and he was loosed from the pains of death because death is a painful thing because when you are in hell, what do we see? They are in fire. The rich man, we, t- we talked about him, but we're going to talk about him. He was in hell in torments. He was tormented in this flame. That is the experience of the dead. And so, um, to claim a death without pain for Christ is to greatly add to or even subtract from the Scripture. It's a little bit of both. If, if, you, if you say he was not in pain, well, you didn't get that from anywhere in the Scripture, so you just added to the Scripture. To take away the pain is to take away from Scripture because we do see where he is in pain. We see the travail of his soul. We see the pains of death. And it is also to redefine what death is because every time we see death and hell, it's always a bad thing. It's always, it's always a painful thing. And I'm not even going to address the outrage argument, which is the biggest argument people use. Get outraged. That's not an argument. Okay? Everybody goes full Democrat, full... You know, it's like... Anybody ever watch the Young Turks? Okay, sometimes I watch them just to get angry. And I and every and but at the same time too, it almost brings me pleasure because they're always angry. That's their response to everything. I'm angry. They interview somebody I like. They're just mad at them the whole time. It's like, why are you even interviewing them? Are you just do you just have people on for you to yell at? Cuz I mean, is, is this therapeutic for you to do that? You're not it's not being angry is not an argument. But yet, Baptists go full Young Turks whenever they deal with the subject. And that's not a compliment, okay? That's not a compliment. And so, I, I don't even have time to address that. But, I do, the, I do. The Bible is very clear. The wages of sin is death. Jesus paid my debt. And if that's just physical death, then Jesus didn't make full payment because I'm going to have a physical death. You know why? Because I'm a sinner. And this body will give out one of these days. And this body will die. And this body will go to the grave. But I, Tommy McMurtry, I will not die. To be absent, I will leave this temple one of these days. 
I will leave this tabernacle. I will put this tabernacle off. But my soul will immediately be with the Lord. I will never experience the grave. You all may experience watching my body go into the grave. But I won't be here for that. I will be in heaven with the Lord. That will not, I, I will never experience the grave. I will never know what, that is, what it is like to experience the grave. Because my, I will be somewhere else. And when I'm dead, you all can talk about me all you want in, in that casket. I won't hear a thing. I won't care. Because I won't be there. I will, I will not be in the room even if my body is. So when it comes to the death of Christ, I mentioned last week, you know, there's really only two schools of thought that are worth addressing. And that is there's the Abraham's bosom doctrine basically showing. So there's the idea that Christ's soul being in hell means he died the death of a sinner and was dead for three days. I do not believe Jesus paid for our sins in hell. I believe he paid for our sins on the cross and he died. I believe he was dead for three days, which is why I believe he was in hell. Uh, and so there, there, and then there's those who believe that Jesus died the death of a saint, like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who God said are the living, and he went to paradise or what they will call Abraham's bosom. And I personally think that is completely false. And so what we're going to look at tonight, we're going to focus on the Catholic harrowing of hell doctrine or as some would call it, Christ's descent into Abraham's bosom. Because again, the harrowing of hell, if, if you define that biblically, that's a thing. But typically when you hear that term, the harrowing of hell, it's a Catholic teaching. And I do not agree with what the Catholics teach about Christ's descent into hell. I think it is completely false. However, I think it's an awesome story. And again, Mel Gibson is making a movie supposedly covering this. If this happens, if he does it right, this doctrine will become even bigger in the Baptist world. And I'm just punching it in the face before it even surfaces. Because I, I think it's a really bad teaching. And I want to show the mistake people are making. I believe that good, honest people are reading their Bibles and or, and, or I shouldn't say they're reading their Bibles. I believe good, honest people are attempting to prove this teaching from the Scriptures, but they are making some huge mistakes they don't even realize they're making. There are things that many people think are in the Bible, they want to be in the Bible, but the reality is they're not in, it's just, it's just not there. And so what they typically do is they piece these different things together from the Scriptures and create a doctrine. And that's not always inappropriate. But at the same time, if we don't have any clear place in the Scripture that outlines what you're saying, maybe it's just because it's not there. Kind of like the Nephilim doctrine, for example. And, it, and that's, that's one, you know, the pre-trib rapture. And they'll even say, well, there's not one verse that says we're not here, explicitly says we're not here for the tribulation. However, if you rightly divide and piece things together and do all these things and the Jews are great and all that kind of stuff, then you come up with the pre-tribulation rapture. And it's like, well, again, I, I, I'm afraid you're mistaken. And here's what I believe has happened when it comes to this doctrine. Somebody heard teaching from this Catholic version and they went to the, they, they read this story and then they went to the scripture looking for proof of it. You can't do that. Let the scriptures tell you the story. 
Let them form your doctrine. Don't you decide on a story or a doctrine and then go looking for proof of it. That is not, that is opposite of what you're supposed to do. But I'm going to read you some things. Brother Matt panicked when he saw all my notes uh, that I have, but a lot of his stuff I'm just going to be reading. Uh, this still might be a little long. I'm going to try to keep, I'm going to try to keep it short. But I, I, I believe this is where this Abraham's bosom or this Catholic version of the harrowing of hell has come in to be. Because I, I, I am 100% convinced that this teaching of a special compartment for the saints in hell called Abraham's bosom, it didn't come from the Bible, but from Catholic theology books that even the Catholics don't claim are Bible. But this intre- incredibly intriguing, entertaining story, it was put into the minds of theologians and then accepted by many, and then they went to the Scriptures saying, I want to find proof of that. Because they know I can't preach out of the Gospel of Nicodemus. I got to find Bible to prove this doctrine that I like. And so they go looking for the scriptures to find proof. But when we actually go back and check in those scriptures again, it's not teaching what they're saying. And so I understand this is a serious charge I'm making, but if I can prove 100% of their arguments and their scriptures they use are not using the scriptures correctly and they're using the scriptures the way the Gospel of Nicodemus does that is not a biblical book, then, I'm, then I think that tells me their theology is not sola scriptura. It's not based only on the scriptures. And so, the, the words of God show me that death and hell are always bad and always painful. But many will listen to this sermon and they'll make the absurd argument that, you know, that this is, or, you know, and it's, it's not an argument, I guess I should say, where they go to the scriptures looking for proof that Jesus did not suffer in hell. Because that's what people do. Well, I'm going to prove he didn't suffer in hell. And so then what do they do? They'll go read you a verse about the cross. Where does it say anything about him burning in hell? You know, and they'll, they'll just say dumb stuff. That's not, you don't go, that, that's not how you do these things. Again, they're, they're already exposing themselves for what they're doing in their doctrine. They're not looking to the scriptures to tell them what to think. They're looking for scripture to prove what they've already decided is true. If you do that, you're going to get a lot of stuff mixed up. And so let's see what the Catholics put in everyone's head. And then let's look at the scriptures that they use to back it up and see if they're rightly dividing. Because so um, obviously we don't have time to read the whole Gospel of Nicodemus, but it is it's entertaining. It's entertaining stuff. But what we're about to see in the Gospel of Nicodemus is the testimony of two sons of the priest Simeon. Remember the priest Simeon who knew that it was revealed to God? or revealed by God to him, that he would not see death till he had seen the Christ. So this is about a Bible character. That makes it sound like it's true. It mentions Simeon. We remember him from Matthew. And so what happened at the death of Christ, remember how it says in Matthew 27, 50, it talks about when he shouted and gave up the ghost, how the graves were open and the saints that slept arose. And it says, and they came out of the graves after his resurrection, went to the holy city and appeared unto me. I wonder what they did. I wonder what they said. Okay, well, guess what? The Bible doesn't tell us. Y'all understand that? The Bible doesn't tell us, but the Gospel of Nicodemus does. Ooh, this lines up with the Bible. It doesn't line up with the Bible. The Bible doesn't tell us what they said. So you can, if, if you tell us what they said, you're adding to the Scripture. And so these two men in the story are the sons of Simeon, the high priest, who had died. And then they come in to the city, and they start telling everybody what happened during the three days 
while Jesus was dead. That's what's going on in the Gospel of Nicodemus. Their names are Chirinus and Lentheus. The two sons of Simeon trembled when they heard these things and were disturbed and groaned at the same time looking up to heaven. They made the sign of the cross with their fingers on their tongues. I don't know what that is. And immediately they spake and said, Give each of us some paper and we will write down for you all those things which we have seen. And they sat down and wrote, saying... Now, here's the thing. They were both in different places and they both wrote down the exact same thing. That proves it's real. Okay? And, and I don't even have time to go into the history of the book of Nebus where it came from. You want to know when, it, you don't want to know when this thing surfaced? Fourth century, same time as the Catholics. Coincidentally. A lot, a lot of stuff happened in the 4th century. But anyway, Matthew 27 is not proof that this event happened that we're about to read about. Do you all understand that? We know some graves opened at the crucifixion of Christ, but it does not mean that this story here, you know, it, it, it doesn't mean Matthew 27 has proven what we're reading here. But listen to what it says, because it's good. O Lord Jesus, Father, who art God, also the resurrection of life and the dead, give us leave to declare the mysteries which we saw after death, belonging to thy cross, for we are sworn by thy name. For thou hast forbid thy servants to declare the secret things which were wrought by thy divine power in hell, when we were placed with our fathers in the depths of hell, in the blackness of darkness, on a, on a sudden there appeared the color of the sun like gold and a substantial purple colored light enlightening the place. So they're in hell, Abraham's bosom, but it's dark. It's, it's not a great place. But imagine, and listen folks, I've heard preachers preach this. One day, them saints, they were down there and they were down there in Abraham's bosom, just waiting for the day that the Messiah come. And just one day, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this light comes and Jesus Christ, he comes down there, got the thief on the cross with him. And then next thing you know, and they always start talking about Isaiah. And then they'll start giving all these Old Testament prophecy quotes. I have heard many preachers do this routine. And you know what? That is exactly what we see in this book. Read a little bit more. We got a light shine presently upon this. Adam, the father of all mankind with all the patriarchs and prophets, rejoiced and said that light is the author of everlasting light who hath promised to translate us to everlasting light. Can, you know how cool of a movie this will be if all of a sudden, like down in this cave area in the center of the earth, you have Adam and David and Moses and you've got all the people all there. And then all of a sudden Jesus comes down there to deliver. That's cool, folks. That's a cool... I understand why people want to believe this. I understand why people want to believe the Nephilim doctrine. It's cool sci-fi stuff. You know, I wish Lord of the Rings was true. You know, I wish Star Wars was true. You know, but you know, these are cool stories, but it doesn't... We don't get to go to the Bible to try to prove they're real. These are, these are called cunningly devised fables. And they're brilliant because they include all the biblical characters. And we know they were real. And we do... And there are, there's things the Bible leaves us quite, you know, it doesn't tell us. These are just filling in the blanks for us, right? It's the prequel to Superman. It's Smallville. You know, so we can all learn what he did during his teenage years growing up and stuff like that. The, folks, people have never changed. Everybody's always liked entertainment. But some people have kept it where it belongs. In the fiction section. They've not gone up in their churches and preached it in pulpits. Then Isaiah the prophet, it's all, they always mention Isaiah too. Isaiah the prophet cried out and said, This is that light of the Father and the Son of God according to my prophecy when I was alive upon the earth. The land of Zebulun, the land of Nephilim, beyond Jordan, the people who walked in darkness saw a great light. And to them who dwelled in the region of the shadow of death, light has arisen, and now he has come who hath enlightened us who sat in death. Let me, 
Every preacher who has ever got up and preached and talked about the prophets saying, this is he from Abraham's bosom. They did not get that from the scriptures. They got it from here. This was around since the 4th century. Catholics came up with it. And so verse 7, And while we were all rejoicing in the light which shone upon us, our father Simeon came among us. And congratulating all the company said, Glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, whom I took up in my arms when an infant in a temple and being moved by the Holy Ghost, said to him and acknowledged that, my, that now mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which has prepared before the face of all people a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And all the saints who are in the depths of hell, hearing this, rejoice the more. Afterwards there came forth one like a little hermit and was asked by everyone, Who art thou? To which he replied, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, John the Baptist, and the prophet of the Most High who went before His coming to prepare His way to give the knowledge of salvation to His people for the forgiveness of sins. And I, John, when I saw Jesus coming to me, moved, being moved by the Holy Ghost, I said, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold Him who takes away the sins of the world. And I baptized Him in the river Jordan. And I saw the Holy Ghost descending upon Him in the form of a dove and heard a voice of heaven saying, This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Isn't this cool? you got all these characters. And listen, when Mel Gibson does this, I recommend you throw some diversity in there. Throw the prophetess Deborah in there. Let's give a woman a chance to say something. You know, throw in Ruth. You know, throw in Esther. You know, let's, let's get some diversity in there. Okay, I, I don't know who, any black people from the Old Testament that they could throw in there. I, I, I can't think of any. But we can add some. We'll, we'll turn Moses black. All right, you know, we'll, you know, we'll, just, we'll do some race switching. All that kind of stuff. People will eat this up. People And folks... This is being preached in Baptist churches. What, what we just read here. This isn't them just speculating. No, they got this from this extra-biblical book. Now, no, now watch this part coming up. We're going to see some familiar things. Some more stuff we hear preached in pulpits. Where they are greatly misusing the Scriptures. Says, and as Satan, the prince of hell, spake this together, suddenly there came a voice as of a thunder and a spiritual cry, Remove, O princes, your gates. And be ye lift up ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. When hell heard that he said unto Satan the prince, Depart from me, go out of mine abode. If thou be a mighty man of war, fight thou against the King of glory. But what hast thou to do with him? And hell cast Satan forth out of his dwelling. Then said hell unto the wicked ministers, Shut ye hard the gates of brass, and put on them the bars of iron, and withstand stoutly, lest we that hold captivity be taken captive. That's in the Bible captivity captive there there it is and and folks i remember when i first finally took the time to study what captivity captive means in ephesians i'm like where in the world did they get him leading captivity captive how did they make that mean he led people out of paradise in the heart of the earth when you actually take that passage in context and learn what it is saying you have, then it's like, you would never do that. The only way you would do that is if you went to the Scriptures looking for this doctrine. Because that is not what that passage means. And we'll cover that in a little bit. But I'm just showing you, this is what put that in everybody's head. Nobody would, nobody would read Ephesians 4 and think Him leading captivity captive is Him leading the saints out of good hell to heaven. Nobody would do that. Not when you understand what it's actually saying. But if somebody thought already Jesus taking the saints out of good hell is Him leading captivity captive, 
go do Google search, you know, search, eSword search and that. Oh, look, here's a verse proving it. But again, it's this that put that idea in people's head. So it's, it's just not even close to what the Scriptures teach. But let's read some more of this. It says, The Lord stretching forth His hand made the sign of the cross upon Adam and upon all His saints. I'm skipping stuff in here. I'm just kind of hitting some highlights. And taking hold of Adam by His right hand, He ascended from hell and all the saints of God followed Him. I'm going to see them all flying out of there. He grabs Adam and, and there they go. I don't know. I, I picture them going through like this big cavish tunnel, ascending up through the earth, getting ready to go out into heaven. It says, and all the saints of God followed him. Then the royal prophet David boldly cried. It's always Isaiah and it's always David. Here's David. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song, for he hath done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gotten him the victory. The Lord hath made known his salvation. His righteousness hath he openly shown in the sight of the heathen. And the whole multitude of saints answered, saying, This honor have all his saints. Amen. Praise ye the Lord. Afterwards, the prophet Habakkuk cried out and said, Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for the salvation of thy people. And all the saints said, Blessed is he who cometh in the name of the Lord. For the Lord hath enlightened us. This is our God forever. He shall reign over us to everlasting ages. Amen. In like manner, all the prophets spake the sacred things of his praise. And follow the Lord. So can you just picture it as they're flying out of hell? All the prophets crying out their prophecies that are in our Scriptures. That's cool. That's a cool story. And so again, and there now... There are many dispensational songs that make the, in the songs it sounds like the thief on the cross was the first person to come by the way of the cross. Okay, there's a song called "By the Way of the Cross," beautiful song, but it makes it sound like the thief on the cross was the first one to get in by the cross. Everybody got in by the cross. The song "I Can Go In," we banned that song from our church. It is very popular in the Baptist world, but it makes it like there's some people that got in through martyrdom, that there was an Old Testament saints group that went in, and then there was the one saved by grace, and guess who's leading them? The thief on the cross. Everybody got in by the way of the cross. Everybody got in the same way. But yet many people teach that. Why? It comes from junk like this. And look at the, and so listen to this. Then the Lord holding Adam by his hand delivered him to Michael the archangel, and he led them into paradise filled with mercy and glory. And two very ancient men met them and were asked by the saints, Who are ye who have not yet been with us in hell and have had your bodies placed in paradise? Hey, they met two guys when they got to paradise that weren't in hell with them. Anybody want to guess who they are? Enoch and Elijah. Yep. And so one of them answered, I'm Enoch who is translated by the Word of God. And this man who is with me is Elijah the Tishbite, who translated it in a fiery chariot. Here we have hitherto been and have not tasted death, but are now about to return at the coming of Antichrist, being armed with divine signs and miracles to engage with him in battle and to be slain by him at Jerusalem and to be taken up alive again into the clouds after three days and a half. And, uh, and by the way, too, I don't have this part in here, but in there, too, they talk about the things they prophesied about how the Messiah was going to come after 5,500 years from Adam. Now, and they have their timeline in there, but their timeline, the 5,500 years, is from Adam to the cross. Yeah. So they've got like an extra 1,500 years in there that they have. So, uh, and the thing is, that's right straight out of the book of Enoch. So, again, this is, this, all this stuff 
This is not Bible. It doesn't even line up with the Bible. But yet, a lot of people love the book of Enoch too. You know why? Entertaining. Cunningly devised fable. But anyway, that's another subject for another day. But then watch this. So, and while the holy Enoch and Elias were relating this, behold, there came another man in a miserable figure carrying the sign of the cross upon his shoulders. And when all the saints saw him, they said to him, Who art thou? And he said, I have come by the way of the cross. That's, that's where this stuff comes from. Who art thou? For thy countenance is like a thief's. And why dost thou carry the cross upon thy shoulders? To which he answering said, Ye say right, for I was a thief who committed all sorts of wickedness upon earth. And I'm not like the company of saints. I'm not like the company of martyrs. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. This is just like the songs all teach. These, these things are literally in songs. We are singing this doctrine. And so people are believing it. And then they're going and twisting the Scriptures into this. This is Catholic stuff. How did it make its way into Baptist churches? And a lot of it came through songs. That's where this stuff comes from. But anyway, I keep losing my spot. And it says, And the Jews crucified me with Jesus, and I observed the surprising things which happened in the creation at the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. And I believed Him to be the Creator of all things and the Almighty King. And I prayed to Him, saying, Lord, remember me when Thou comest in Thy kingdom. He presently regarded my supplication and said to me, Verily I say unto Thee, This day Thou shalt be with me in paradise. And He gave me this sign of the cross, saying, Carry this and go to paradise. And if the angel who is the guard of paradise will not admit thee, show him the sign of the cross and say unto him, Jesus Christ, who is now crucified, has sent me hither to thee. When I did this and told the angel who is the guard of paradise all these things and he heard them, he presently opened the gates, introduced me and placed me on the right hand in paradise, saying, stay here a little time till Adam, the father of all mankind, shall enter in with all his sons who are the holy righteous servants of Jesus Christ, who is crucified. So this sorry, good-for-nothing thief who got in by grace, he had to wait for all the righteous ones. Like Adam and Lot and David the adulterer and Moses the murderer and Samson the whoremonger. I mean, and people are teaching that they did. They got in by faith plus works in the Old Testament. This is so bad. I expect this from Catholics. I don't expect it from Baptists. But again, if we're, and again, most Baptists have not read this. They've not read it. But they're parroting people who are parroting somebody who read this. Okay? That, because you don't find this in the scriptures. You absolutely, but you'll find this preached in Baptist churches. So, um, lost my spot. I've got so many notes up here. So, yeah, so everyone who teaches this nonsense, they do. They they will go to. We're going to go to the passages that they will try to use to teach this doctrine. To basically, these people they have an image imprinted in their brain from the Gospel of Nicodemus, and then now they're going to the Scriptures. This is exactly what has happened. It, uh, for example, like in the Thief in the Night movies, the Thief in the Night movie imprinted an image of the coming of Christ as a secret rapture where nobody sees anything, nobody hears anything, and people just disappear and their clothes fall to the ground. People literally are reading that into the Scriptures now because a movie put that in their minds. The Gospel of Nicodemus 
put this image in people's minds of them going to a special compartment in hell where Jesus comes and when he shows up, all the prophets are talking, saying, this is one I prophesied. All the same thing. Jesus leads them out. I mean, there, I, I could start singing songs uh, about it. There's, and there's some cool songs. All right, anybody know who Keith Green is? He's a weird hippie from back in the day, but he, he, uh, he, was, like a, he was like a Christian singer. He wrote a really cool song uh, about the death of Christ. You know, it's like, and it's swallowed into earth's dark tomb or dark womb. Death is triumph. That's what they say. But try to hold him in the tomb. The son of life rose on the third day. Just look, the gates of hell, they're calling or they're falling, crumbling from the inside out. He's bursting through the walls with laughter. Listen to the people shout. That's what happened in this story. That's what, that's exactly what happened in here. Bursting through the gates and all that. Where do you get that from? You don't see that in the scriptures, but we see it in here. It's a cool song. It's, it's a really cool song. I'm about to break out into singing it right now. But again, it's, it, it's not biblical. So, but again, these things are in people's mind. So now people, because they've imprinted this cool image in their mind, they, will, they have found this story in the Scriptures. Now let's go to the Scriptures, because this is where they will go. Baptists will tell you the same story that we read in the book of Nicodemus. The exact same story, but they know better than to use the words of the Gospel of Nicodemus. They have to use the words of the King James Bible. Let's use the words of the King James Bible they use and see if we can find that story. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it? But that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. There it is. But wait a minute. This is quoting, and I I would encourage anybody, if you want to know more on this, because I don't have time to expound on it, go watch my sermon on the prophecy of Deborah. Okay, The prophecy of Deborah explains this as clear as can be, leaving absolutely no doubt, but it's it's on uh, one of my judges' sermons. But Ephesians 4, 8, or, um, is, this is quoting Psalm 68, 18. Thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led captivity captive. Thou hast received gifts for men. Yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. Blessed be the Lord who daily loadeth us with benefits, even the God of our salvation. He that is our God is the God of salvation. Unto God the Lord belong the issues from death. This was about the issues of death or from death or what Christ accomplished for us by His death, burial, and resurrection. Because of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, some good things came from it. They're issues of death. And if we go to Ephesians 4 and we read all of it, it talks about the gifts that He gave. It says He... uh, uh, Well, turn over... I need to turn over there. I didn't put this one verse in my notes. So Ephesians chapter 4... In verse 7, But unto every one of us is giving grace according to the measure of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. And then it talks about him descending in first in the lower parts of the earth. And, but then let's, and, which is a per, parenthetical statement. So look at verse 11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some uh, pastors and teachers for the perfecting of saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. When he, The captivity that he led captive, this was so he could give gifts to men to help us. Now, this is what's hard for us. We were never under the Old Covenant. 
So a lot of this is foreign to us. But under the old covenant, there were many things that us as Gentiles were completely excluded from that Paul has already talked about in Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3. We don't have time to preach through all of Ephesians. But we were excluded from many things. Because of what Christ did on the cross, He removed all of those carnal ordinances that were against us and gave us access into the things of God. And now, amongst us Gentiles, we have evangelists, pastors, teachers. Even though we're not Levites, even though we're not Jews, we, we, God has given us all these things in the church. We have these things and we are able to be perfected as saints. We're able to do the work of the ministry. We're able to do all these things without the things of the law, without the sacrifice, without the ordinances. The things of the law would have excluded all of us. It would have disqualified all of us. Those things and those things in the Bible of the law are described over and over again as bondage. These things were bondage. The people of Israel, they were in bondage. They were held captive by the things of the law. And Christ conquered all of those things for us through the cross, through His death, His burial, and resurrection. And so when He ascended, Him leading captivity captive, the captivity is the law. It's what Captivity is what holds people captive. you understand that? The captivity is what, is, is what holds people captive. It was all those carnal ordinances. They were conquered by Christ. They cannot be used against us. He took them captive is what He did. The Old Testament saints can't be the captivity because even to their, according to their own doctrine, because captivity is what holds captives. Were the Old Testament saints holding anyone captive? No. Jesus led captivity captive. That, that's what it's talking about. That means He conquered what was holding everybody. What was holding everybody? It was the law. And Jesus removed all those things. He defeated all of those things. And, so he, and he gave gifts unto men. Colossians 2.10 And ye are complete in Him which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of sins of the flesh of the circumcision of Christ. Notice he's talking about ceremonial things under the law. Buried with him in baptism, whereunto also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to His cross. Okay, now, folks, what was nailed to the cross? The body of Jesus. But in Jesus being nailed to the cross, enduring the cross, paying for our sins on the cross, in that act, He blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, and He nailed it to His cross. So on one hand, he's the one being nailed to the cross and he's being killed. But in reality, legally, spiritually, he's nailing the law to the cross. The thing that was condemning us, the law condemns. The law is against us. And Jesus Christ took that away. This is not about a compartment in hell where the saints were being held. You don't find that anywhere in the Scriptures, but you do find it in the Gospel of Nicodemus. For sure. So, and it says, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. When did he do this show? Folks, when did Christ make a show 
of the people in hell holding everybody captive. He didn't do that. So well, when did he make a show over the ordinances that were against us? On the cross. The world did not realize that's what he was doing. Even Mary and the women at the cross and John, when they saw him hanging there on the cross, at the time they did not understand what he was accomplishing. But Jesus is completing everything for our salvation. He is completing the things of the law. He is making the sacrifice for sins that was, again, these things were against us. We were all doomed. We were all trapped. We were in prison. And you had the Jews at that time who are trying to achieve righteousness through the things of the law. And they were, they were prisoners. They were captive. And they didn't even know it. So the captives were not people in hell. The captives, get this, were people on earth. Now, what is another word for a captive? Anybody think of another word we would call a captive? A prisoner. A captive is a, is a prisoner. And what does it say in Luke 4.18? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And He closed the book and gave it again to His minister and sat down. And the eyes of all of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on Him. And He began to say unto them, This day is this Scripture fulfilled in your ears. What was fulfilled? Preaching liberty to the captives. Who were the? When did Jesus preach to the captives? It was that day. Everybody get that? It was on earth that day, first century. Jesus preached to the captives, as was prophesied. Now, this leads us to the next scripture they misused to try to force this Abraham's bosom doctrine. First Peter three eighteen. First Peter chapter three and verse eighteen says. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins. And, and boy, I shouldn't even address this. You people that think Jesus suffered in hell, you think He had to suffer on the cross and then He had to suffer again in hell and teach a hell atonement. That is the dumbest argument in the world. Okay, The whole point of everything Jesus did, the death, burial, and resurrection, it was a one-time thing versus an annual thing, a daily thing like they had under the old covenant system. He died once, was buried once, he rose again once. That's not three things he had to do. You know, it's, it's all one thing. You know what I'm saying? He's not doing it again and again. It, it's, it's a one-time thing. That's all it's saying. And so just what a absolutely insultingly foolish argument that is. But it's, it's a go-to for everybody. But, sorry, i got to stay focused here. By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. There it is. What was he doing in hell? He was preaching. Uh, you, he's, so he's preaching in hell? Folks, prisoners, captives, same thing. He went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now, I will admit, this next passage, it is difficultly worded, and I, I don't have a lot of time to go into this, but let me, let me tell you what we're seeing here. And, and, and just do a little study, you'll figure out what I'm saying can be backed up, but it says, which, so by which also he went and preached in the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was preparing, wherein few that is eight souls were saved by water, the like figure wherein to even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven is on the right hand of God, angels, authorities, and powers being made subject unto him. Now, 
people teach two weird doctrines. They also use this to teach the Nephilim doctrine. Because they'll talk, it mentions the days of Noah in here. While the wording in here is difficult, if we read, if we took the time to go through all of 1 Peter, it is very clear he is telling these, I believe, saved Jews how important it is for them, even though they're not saved by the law, but that they live good, clean, moral lives for a testimony's sake. Because even though they are saved and they are, are redeemed and God has done all these things from the inside, it is important that they have a testimony on the outside to back these things up. Just as Noah and his family, they were saved by water. They were saved in the ark. And so while they had an, uh, that inward righteousness and all found grace in the eyes of the Lord, it was revealed to all men when they were actually physically saved from the flood. Is, is, and so while the wording is difficult there, and I wish I had time to prove all those things I just said, I, I would encourage you to go back and look, but the spirits in prison were not a group of people in the days of Noah. It's just using an example of people who basically it was, the truth was revealed through. And Peter wants the truth to be revealed through these people. He wants, it's important when you get saved that your life does change. And that's what First Peter's all about. And you shouldn't live like the Gentiles. Alright? And then, so when we get to chapter 4, it says, For as much as Christ also has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh in the lust of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries wherein they think it's strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. They're acting like something's wrong with you because you don't live like them. But look at this. Who shall give an account to him that is ready to judge the quick or the living and the dead? For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. So they'll say, Jesus was preaching in hell. He preached to the living, those in Abraham's bosom, and he preached to the dead, those who were in hell. Uh, no. The captives, the prisoners, the spirits in prison were the Jews who were under the law. They weren't physically in prison, but spiritually they were in prison. That's why he refers to them as spirits in prison. That was their spiritual state. They were the people of God, but they were in bondage unto the law. Where the Gentiles, they were the dead. Like Paul referred to them as ye, and you had the quickened, who were dead in your trespasses and sin. They had no spiritual enlightenment. They had no spiritual position with God. But yet, the gospel was also preached to the dead. Now, if that's referring to dead people that are in hell, how, why did Jesus go preach to dead people in hell so they would know how to live according to God in the Spirit? Can you explain that one to me? No, because it's talking about Gentiles. So they would, could know, it was preached to them, so they would know how to live according to God in the Spirit. So, the, the spirits in prison? Jews. The dead that were preached to? Gentiles. That's what that's about. This is not teaching Jesus preached in hell. And that's what a lot of people do. Well, what was he doing for the reading? He was preaching. Uh, I, I, he, he, I think he does do some preaching in the Gospel of Nicodemus, too. There's some stuff. I, I think we do see some of that. There's a couple different versions of it out there, and they're not all exactly the same. But again, but we don't see him preaching in hell in the Bible. It's not there. 
They're, they're reading into it. So, uh, let's go to Luke 16 real quick. Man, I am going to preach. I'm preaching long. Sorry about this. I'm going I'm to hurry up and finish this. But having looked at all this, let's go to the main passage they misuse and see if their thoughts are formed by the Word of God or the words of men. Because I submit to you that when they read Abraham, the story about the rich man and Lazarus, they are thinking in their mind about a place described in the Gospel of Nicodemus. They're not just thinking about what we see in the Scriptures. And notice it says, And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Now, is it Abraham's bosom with a capital B? Or is it bosom with a small b? This isn't the name of a place. It's a thing. Nowhere in the Bible do we see the title Abraham's bosom used for a place. That is adding to Scripture. Okay? Luke verse 23. You say, well, why did it call it that? It, and I will give it to you. Just there, it almost kind of looks like a title unless we understand we're seeing a contrast here. The Bible is showing us through this whole story a contrast between the rich man and Lazarus. There's a contrast on earth where the rich man had good things, Lazarus had evil things. In hell, the rich man has bad things, Lazarus has good things. And so as soon as we see Lazarus in heaven, we see him in Abraham's bosom. I believe we are seeing him being comforted. We are seeing him being embraced. Where in verse 23, we get to the rich man and in hell with a capital H or a small h. Small H, because it's a thing. In hell, he lift up his eyes, being in torments. That's what hell is. That's what happens when you are in hell. That's what happens when you are dead. It's bad being dead. But in hell, being in torments, seeth Abraham afar off. Coincidentally, he sees the guy that the place is named after. Or, no, it's because he's seeing Lazarus, who is in Abraham's bosom. And so, coincidentally, he sees Abraham. There, because, again, he was literally in Abraham's bosom, being embraced. And it says, um, but yeah, and here's the thing, too. If Abraham's bosom is the name of a place, then it wasn't necessary to point out that Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom. Because it knows how it says, you know, he was, um, in verse 22, the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. And so when he sees Lazarus there, why does he need to mention Abraham's bosom? Obviously, we already know he's there. No, because again, he's noticing the, there's a contrast. He's tormented. Lazarus is being comforted. And so I, I believe the Bible mentions that for a reason. It's showing the contrast. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. That's what happened. We always see that with death and with hell. They're in flames. They're, they're in torment. But Abraham said, Son, remember thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. Again, the contrast. This whole thing. It's contrast. It's a contrast on earth. It's a contrast in hell. Both Throughout the entire thing. And beside all this, there is a great gulf. Between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that should come from thence. And so again, I can see where they're getting this picture in their mind of two separate compartments, but at the same time, how do we explain what we're seeing here? Because if all we have is Luke 16, it's hard to be specific. But this is where we find out where people are getting their ideas. 
Do people's description of what we just saw in Luke 16, does it fit Greek mythology? Or does it, or does it um, go along with Scripture? Because there are Greek mythology explanations that don't necessarily contradict what we see in Luke 16 that isn't real specific, but there is no biblical way that we can explain this to show that nothing here from the past you know, contradicts the Scripture's or uh, that there's nothing from the past that contradicts what the scriptures show us in the future. And in the future, we're not even going to take time to read it in, uh, in Revelation 14, Isaiah 66. You know what they can see from heaven? Hell. You know what they can see in heaven? The lake of fire. We see it from heaven. So I can show you scripture where literally in heaven, they're able to see hell. So... I got a script. So the thing is, I don't know how all this stuff works, but either way, if we just use the Bible to form our thoughts, we can see how heaven is still able to see hell and we'll be able to see the lake of fire in the future. So that, so the thing is to come up with this two compartments, again, we're adding to the scripture. You're not getting that just from the scriptures. And so in, in, it is clear in scriptures that we will see the judgment that we missed. And those who are judged will see the paradise that they missed. And I, I don't even have time to go into all the scriptures on that. But, oh man, going long. We've got uh, Greencastle, so I, that means I can't even force you guys here to stay another hour. So, look, the Bible couldn't be more clear. Jesus suffered and he died for our sins. He was dead for three days. The wages of sin is death. Jesus tasted death for every man. I will never taste of death. And so, when we see that verse in the Bible, he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. It was prophesied in Jonah that he was going to go to hell out of the belly of hell, I cried. And you know what? God heard him. God saw the travail of his soul and said, it's enough. My wrath has been satisfied. And it was when his soul was made an offering for sin. It's okay to preach that. It's absolutely okay to preach that. It's important that we preach that. We've got Old Testament. We've got New Testament. We have all the scriptures that teaches that he died. And so to change the, what people are literally doing is changing the definition of death. They're changing the definition of hell to fit the Catholic harrowing of hell story. And it's a cool story. But it's not Bible. And it is. It's going to become very popular if they, if it's depicted well on this movie. And I want to be on record as being against it and calling it out before everybody else does. Because we're going to see two things after that movie comes out. You're going to see a group preaching against it and a group preaching in favor of it. And so I was first one <laughs> to call out that movie before it even came out. And so I, I hope this will help. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, for all that you did for us in your life, in your suffering on the cross, in your death, and even with what you're doing now, making intercession for us. Help us to not throw out any of it. Help us to be thankful for all of it. Help us to teach and to preach all of it. And uh, we thank you so much that we don't have to worry about every little intricate detail of it. You took care of it for us. And I just pray you'll help us to not deny uh, the things that we can clearly read in the Scriptures, but we will uh, boldly proclaim these things to everyone we can. In your name we pray. Amen.